As you know, it's important to me that the supplements I recommend and use are of the highest quality. That's why I stock the Protocol for Life Balance product line at my online dispensary. Protocol for Life Balance offers a wide range of professional-grade products using ingredients backed by strong scientific research. Among them, several stand out for their support of aging healthfully, PQQ, glutathione, and alpha-lipoic acid. PQQ helps support your heart and brain function and promotes robust cellular energy production. Glutathione supports proper cellular detoxification and healthy immune function, and alpha-lipoic acid helps maintain your neural health and helps preserve optimal blood flow. Each of these products takes its own unique approach to neutralizing free radicals and protecting us from oxidative stress as we age. They're only available from healthcare practitioners, but they're available to you at drhoffman.com slash protocol for life balance. That's drhoffman.com slash protocol for life balance for more information and to order. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. It's our weekly rundown of questions that you send to us, and we team up, Layla Mutin and I, Layla's our nutritionist in residence, to deliver, hopefully, answers and intriguing discussion based on the themes that you send us. How are you doing today, Layla? Okay, Dr. Hoffman, how are you? Very well, thanks. But uh, we have a very special announcement for mm. today's broadcast, and it has to do with the destination for questions. Previously, yes. radio program at AOL.com, uh, and that sounds like a great uh, destination for emails, but we've come up with an even better one. And the reason is because uh, our previous uh, destination for questions crashed. And, wow. uh, and it has to do with, uh, and I found this, uh, it has to do with uh, the unreliability of AOL. Uh, some of you may still be using AOL. Uh, generally, when people give out AOL as their uh, email, uh, it kind of dates them, right? Because, uh, you know, we went yes. back to, uh, you know, kind of the, the 90s <laughs> with AOL, and we kept our uh, traditional emails. But more and more of uh, my friends and colleagues are abandoning AOL because they find it unwieldy. I uh, recently uh, changed my personal email uh, to Gmail, which is mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more robust. I don't know about the data mining that they do on Gmail. That's another story entirely. But just in terms that of its, uh, the reliability of uh, AOL, uh, not so reliable as we found. And, and we were kind of in a panic because we said, oh, my goodness, um, the uh, website, uh, not the website, the email uh, address crashed. And mm -hmm. are we going to be able to retrieve questions? And we retrieved a few. So I'm going to suggest that people who sent their questions to uh, our previous destination for questions, jot down this new email because there may be some that are sort of lost in the ether, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you can then uh, resend your questions to the new destination. I think we've come up with an even better uh, destination yes, for questions. I agree. It's, it's simple. It's questions at drhoffman.net. Not .com. Everything is .com, but this is 
questions at drhoffman.net. We'll repeat it uh, frequently until uh, people have it uh, thoroughly imprinted in their neurons. But um, that's the destination for it's, questions as we go forward. It's an easy one to remember, questions at drhoffman.net. It kind of rolls off the tongue. Questions yeah. at drhoffman.net. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you yeah. Know, we're going to go forward with that. And, uh, you know, we'll keep reminding you of it until uh, you're thoroughly acquainted with it. So but the good news is that we were able to salvage uh, a few questions from there. Plus, we had some uh, leftovers from last week. So we actually have a nice, uh, a nice assortment of questions to address on today's program. So (laughs) um, but I'm going to start with this. Um, yeah, there's an article that uh, I came across in Medscape. You know, Medscape is uh, it's a way that uh, doctors uh, communicate with one another. And the headline is calorie counting and exercise of limited value for obesity weight loss. Now, I'm going to put this to you as a uh, professional nutritionist uh, with a master's degree uh, and as a uh, registered dietitian as well, um, what say you? Is, is it is it futile to count calories, uh, join a gym, um, uh, begin exercise? Not, I mean, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, calories do count, you know. But we can't eat four thousand calories every day. We will gain weight. However, uh, we also can't out exercise. A bad diet. Right. Therefore, the diet itself is about 80% for weight loss, for effectiveness for weight loss. The rest of it is actual physical activity. Unless you're an elite athlete, yeah. that changes. Calorie counting, I kind of consider, Dr. Hoffman, as dinosaur nutrition. Because it's not just the calories, it's the the type of calorie determines its metabolic fate. Mm-hmm. Let me explain. Carbohydrate calories will tend to be stored and used as glycogen for energy, but beyond that, stored as fat. Fat and protein calories, on the other hand, will tend to be burned as energy, provided, again, that we don't overdo the calories at the end of the day. Indeed. And, you know, I I will cite the case, you know, uh, there are outliers. Uh, I will cite the case of uh, someone we've interviewed a couple of times here on Intelligent Medicine. Uh, She's an exceptional person. She uh, decided in her 60s to uh, address her uh, overweight problem. Uh, She was over 300 pounds. And uh, she embarked on a program to begin, you know, sort of a gentle walking program. And then she decided, well, I like that. Let me pick it up with a little bit of a run. And, oh, by the way, um I, I can swim and I can cycle, so maybe I'll try doing a triathlon. Well, fast forward uh, a few years, and Sue Reynolds has become a champion triathlete in her age group. Uh, she routinely wins races or, you know, at worst uh, comes up second or third in her age group, uh, which is a select group of uh, senior athletes, uh, over 60 athletes. Um She's uh, a little younger than I am, but she's well into her 60s, and she's uh, she now... Uh, has lost approximately 200 pounds. 
<laughs> so, oh my goodness! Yeah, that so, is truly inspiring. Yeah, and, and clearly she's changed her diet, but it she's ramped up her exercise to the extent where she's become a sort of a lean, mean, fat burning machine. And it's an amazing yeah. story of uh, determination. But I think very few people can muster the uh, discipline, or, or frankly, have the wherewithal to do that because uh, you know in people's daily lives, you know, they have to go to work, they have children, they have responsibilities, so they can't. Uh, you know, spend their entire lives uh, focused on uh, exercise and hire professional trainers and, you know, spend time uh, in the sun belt during winter months so that they can, you know, uh, have access to pools and exercise on bicycles outside and, you know, beat the inclement weather. But, you know, that's her commitment. And, and you know, she's an exceptional I mean, it's sort of a shining example of what can be accomplished. But here's an interesting thing about that. You know, I agree with your perspective on calorie counting. Um, yes. And so what they say in this article is very interesting. Uh, these are two poster papers. They haven't been reviewed. So these are not peer reviewed. So posters is very easy to put up a poster and it, nobody criticizes it. Uh, and, you know, it gets into the press. Uh, normally, mm -hmm. there's a process of peer review where something is uh, sent to a medical journal. People critique it. Uh, there's a whole process of iteration uh, before it, you know, it's refined and then it gets published. And then there's a back and forth like, you know, well, that study is full of beans because of this, this and that. You know, so it, that's the way that scientific progress gets made, not just putting up posters. But what's interesting about this is um, the study in question that says that calorie counting and exercise are, quote, of limited value for obesity weight loss. Uh, the writers of that study are um, uh, ha are underwritten uh, by, and in fact, I think one of them is employed by Novo Nordisk, which is oh, no. a manufacturer of diabetes and obesity medications, makers okay. of two popular what are called GLP-1 drugs. Very popular now. You see a lot of ads. Oh, 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 Ozempic. You know, you see that ad for that. Right? Oh, yes, yes, it's, yes. It's an injectable semaglutide medication, uh, which is for diabetes originally, but they found that people who take it lose weight. And then now yeah. they have an oral form of it called Ribelsis, Ribelsis, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, those medications have been shown to be helpful for weight loss. So I think what, Basically, you're seeing is they're saying, oh, you know, forget about all that calorie counting and exercise. It's not going to work. Forget about what you eat. Forget take, about exercise. Take yeah. a pill. Take a pill. Take an injection. Take, exactly. You know, so yeah, I, I thought it kind of uh, <laughs> funny because, the, you know, you, I most it, it got picked up by the press everywhere. And nobody yeah. really did a deep dive on like, well, who wrote the study? Where's it coming from? Uh -huh. Where's the potential bias in this study? And, you know, in the Latin phrase, uh, co bono, who, who, who benefits, you know, is yes, is, you, you always have to kind of look behind a study to see is there a motive in, in effect, discouraging people from pursuing uh, a natural process of weight loss. And by the way, I don't have any big problem with some people using these medications if they have extreme uh, overweight and it threatens their health and, you know, the, there are a lot of side effects with these medications, but in certain cases, the benefits outweigh the disadvantages. So, yes. um, 
Yeah. So anyway, so I just, I thought, you know, I talked about it on my weekend show. I thought it'd be worth reiterating with you. But, you know, I think you, you took a little different tack, which is, like, oh, of course, calorie counting. You know, let's talk about, you know, a very low carb diet. Let's talk about, uh, you know, keto. Let's talk about intermittent uh, fasting and, you know, yes. time restricted eating. Yes. You know, these are tools and, you know, that we can use. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a way to eat where you're no longer going hungry. Your hunger will actually diminish. Most people who are going on a low-calorie diet are often eating a higher-carbohydrate, lower-fat diet. The reason for lowering the fat is fats, of the three macronutrients that are in our food, which is fat, protein, carbohydrate, fats contain the most calories. Hence, the removal of so much fat from the diet equals a lower-calorie diet. Well, the side effect of that, unfortunately, is being hungry. And that's why it Which undermines people's resolve. And then ultimately, yes, uh, totally you know, they lose, they gain, they lose, they gain. You know, they can't sustain exactly. it. Right, that whole thing. Okay. And then over, over the course of so many years, all that yo-yo dieting wreaks havoc on the metabolism, the thyroid. But Dr. Hoffman, coming back to Sue Reynolds for a moment. Yep. This is testimony that it is never too late yes she started in her 60s yes a lot of people in their 40s and 50s are throwing up their hands saying oh well it's too late for me i've got the middle age spread i my metabolism what it isn't what it used to be oh no 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 read the story of sue reynolds because right. it's inspiring well and, and one final thought you know i was in the pool this morning uh you know doing mm. my morning swim and uh, I was in a lane next to uh, a woman uh, who, uh, for every uh, two laps I did, she did three. You know, she continued. I could see she wasn't in my lane. She was in the adjacent lane. But I could see, uh, you know, every time I started off and she was behind me, she would pass me and then eventually lap me. And, uh, wow. and you know, so ultimately, you know, she got out of the water a little bit before I did. And, um, you know, I saw her on land. And. I, you know, I won't say that she was uh, fat, but she was she was curvaceous, and mm -hmm. I, the Yiddish expression for that is she was zaftig. You know, she was she was a big gal, but she was in superb uh -huh. physical condition. And you know, I have to say that um, I think we have sometimes unrealistic expectations of how we can contort our bodies into uh, a very svelte appearance and you can be extremely yeah. physically fit at a weight that might be considered above the standard for your stature and you know especially swimmers yes. we i see that a lot with swimmers is that um sometimes large-bodied people uh, make exceptionally good swimmers with very good aerobic capacity and uh obviously cardiovascular uh reserve that um you know, suggests that you know they'll they'll do fine. You know, health wise. So rather than yeah. go into a start into starvation mode, you know, just get healthy, get mm -hmm. active. Exactly, and you don't want to be married to a number on a scale. You don't want to rely on BMI, body mass index, because there are people who are completely athletic, which may with their weight may fall into the category of overweight, and they are clearly not. Right, because it because they're muscular. Oh. Yeah. Okay. They're muscular um, and muscle weighs more than fat. Yes. So okay. So let yeah. Uh, let's get to questions. Uh, the new mm. destination for questions, I'll remind you, is 
dr. I'm sorry. <laughs> questions, questions at drhoffman.net. Jot that down. Questions at drhoffman.net. Uh, start sending your questions. And if you, uh, you know, uh, a little concerned that, uh, you know, you sent a question in the last uh, week or so and it may have gotten uh, caught up in uh, the Internet uh, limbo, uh, just resend your question to questions at drhoffman.net, not .com. Yeah. Okay, let's get to questions. Okay, uh, we've got one here from Marlene. Hi, Dr. Hoffman. Thanks. Thank you for sharing your vast knowledge and keen perspective regarding vitamins and supplements. Do you think that inositol helps with anxiety and or panic disorder? I saw some studies that look promising, but I don't fully understand what I'm reading. If inositol can be useful, how does one figure out the correct dose? I'm asking because I'm an anxious person, and anti-anxiety medications make me feel worse because of their side effects. Mm -hmm. By the way, we've seen that kind of reaction in people taking anti-anxiety yes. medication. Yeah, and why do they, they make people feel worse? Because they actually make people feel disoriented, and disorientation can yes. breed more anxiety. So they, it can anxiety. have a paradoxical effect. Look, uh, by the way, there's an excellent article uh, in the Wall Street Journal uh, weekend. It's a it's an, a long essay. It's not just a quick news hit about the evolutionary benefits of anxiety that we are built, you know, just like we have appetite. You know, we have appetite, we yes. have sex drive, we have, you know, all these are essential for perpetuation of the human species. And anxiety yeah. uh, has been a key to our survival, you know, through the uh, millennia. And so the, the, it, the, the, the goal is not to eliminate anxiety. The goal is to, uh, you know, channel and, uh, and control anxiety uh, and, yeah. let, and, you know, generalized anxiety disorder uh, affect you 24-7. Uh, because yeah. uh, show me a person who has no anxiety and I'll show you a person who's at high risk of uh, destruction. <laughs> you know, you want. You want your feelings to inform you. For example, fear informs us that we may be in danger. Anxiety may be informing us of something similar to that. Be informed by how you feel. Beyond that, you could be curious as to why you feel the distress to the extent that you do. Now, of course, that's something to be examined. If it's exactly. like a generalized anxiety disorder, which is very free-floating and it happens whenever it happens and without necessarily any good reason for it to happen. And, and there's sort of a paleo perspective on that too because uh, anxiety may have served us well in uh, past times where there was real threat of danger, uh, but now yes. the dangers are more subtle. You know, the dangers uh, may occur, you know, from uh, it's kind of a generalized uh, fear that you experience uh, all day long because of yeah. perceived threats, which are not really uh, material threats. You know, so as Mark Twain once said, I've been through some terrible things in my life and some of them actually happened. <laughs> you know, there was <laughs> anticipatory yeah. anxiety yeah. over things that, you know, ultimately don't materialize. That's not uh, helpful yes. to us. But anyway, uh, you know, going to inositol. Look, I'm not a big, um, uh, you know, researcher, writer. Uh, I haven't published many scientific articles. But 
one that I did publish was on inositol uh, way back in the 90s. And we recognized then that inositol has uh, some potential for anxiety and also for obsessive compulsive disorder. And there's some literature on inositol. The problem with inositol is that many supplements, you know, you take one capsule twice daily, you know, 500 milligrams uh, morning and night, and, and they work. Uh, with inositol, you really need a lot of inositol. You need to take uh, like teaspoon amounts uh, three or four yes. or five times a day to achieve those benefits. So if you're willing to do that, uh, you may get some benefits. I like inositol, especially during pregnancy, because we don't want women to take anti-anxiety medications during pre pregnancy. Uh, and yes. it's very gentle. It won't have a negative effect. There's a slight um, con uh, laxative effect, which actually may be helpful. If you, if, you, if you tend to go towards 10 grams, 10,000 milligrams, that's when diarrhea may ensue. If you're keeping it at or, or around the 4,000 to 6,000 milligram range or even 8,000, that could still be helpful. Inositol is wonderful for anxiety. It's also a terrific sleep aid. Mm -hmm. yep. For people who have trouble decompressing at the end of the day and get ready for sleep, inositol can help you do that. Right. And uh, yeah. it, it used to be that, you know, if you go into the health food store and you want to buy a big vat of uh, inositol, they kind of look at you sideways because that was a favorite trick of uh, people who were cutting uh, drugs, cutting uh, heroin uh, mm. and, uh, you know, illicit drugs because inositol is so non-toxic that you can actually, uh, you know, inject it. No, don't try this at home, but I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> You don't need to inject your inositol. No, you, you can take it orally. Right. We also have the capsules available. If you go to drhoffman.com, go to the store. Inositol doesn't only come in powder form; it does come in capsules. Indeed, uh, but also it tastes yeah. rather sweet. Yeah. So it, you know, uh, some things when you try to mix them with water and you, you know, they just have an unpleasant taste. It's actually a rather sweet tasting thing. So it, it mm -hmm. goes down well, and you know, it it. Uh, I, I used to say that the only people who can successfully take, uh, you know, four teaspoons of inositol daily uh, are people who have obsessive compulsive disorder, <laughs> for which mm -hmm. it, it could be helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you'd really have to take a lot. And by the way, teaspoon yeah. roughly gives you about 4,500 milligrams uh, of, mm -hmm. of any given thing. So to translate to teaspoons, that's what it does. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. we have time for another before our break. Yes, we've got a question here from Fran. Dr. Hoffman, I've been relying on my zero uh, calcium score to avoid taking statins for my high cholesterol. However, now the benefits of this test is questioned. If you haven't already discussed this PubMed article on your show, can you please offer your thoughts on it? And I'll, I'll give you an overview, Dr. Hoffman. Sure. It's from JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association Internal Medicine, from April 25 of this year. Yes, I just and I saw they that looked article. At, mm -hmm. Yeah, they looked at the importance of coronary artery calcium scores to help assess a patient's cardiovascular status and risk. And what they found, what they concluded, is that although the coronary calcium scores may have a role for refining risk assessment in selected patients, which patients would benefit remains unclear. 
And they continue to say, at present, no evidence suggests that adding coronary artery and calcium scoring to, to traditional risk scores provides any clini- clinical benefit. Okay. I, you know, I saw, yeah. that, I saw that study. And just to review, the coronary artery calcium scan reveals the presence of uh, calcified plaque within the coronary arteries. It's a fairly inexpensive test to do. Uh, we recommend it to our patients when there's a decision to be made about, okay, my cholesterol is a little high. Am I at risk for cardiovascular disease? And we don't know ahead of time. You know, some people with relatively low cholesterol have a lot of plaque. And some people Mm -hmm. with uh, astronomically high cholesterol uh, have virtually no plaque. So um, it's not about cholesterol. Yeah, right. It's about many factors, not just cholesterol, but, you know, the particle size and the HDL. So anyway, uh, my perspective on that article, and I saw it, uh, and I was kind of dismayed by it, but then I understood where it was coming from. Um, if we, uh, if the medical establishment acknowledged that this calcium scanning was uh, a valid thing, two things would happen. Uh, one, uh, it would increase uh, the budget for Medicare and other insurances by billions of dollars. They would have to reimburse this test. And right now it's, you know, it's out of pocket. Uh, mostly yeah. you can't get um, insurance reimbursement for the test. So, uh, mm-hmm. so there's a cost containment element to this. The other thing that would happen is that a lot of people after receiving a test result that shows zero or very little plaque, you can tell I'm in New York because you can hear the, you know, ambulance sounds uh, outside my window. Um, sure. A lot of people who receive a test score that's very low or zero, like I did, uh, even if their cholesterol is high, they won't take a statin. And I think that there's a great deal of resistance in the medical establishment uh, about discouraging people from taking statins because yes. there's a lot of uh, big pharma mojo about you know, virtually everyone is a candidate for statins. But in other studies, what they demonstrated is that people who have low calcium scores, there's no benefit to taking statin drugs. You know, even if your cholesterol is 300, lowering yeah. cholesterol if you have a zero plaque score. So I find the test extremely useful because we get a lot of people to avoid using statins. And mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. mean, I'm not worried about those people. And, you know, otherwise I'd be committing yes. malpractice by saying, Oh, you know, you don't need a statin. And then, you know, uh, lo and behold, somebody gets a, a heart attack. Um, you know, yes. that it virtually impossible. Now, coming down the pike, as I mentioned, and I'll be interviewing somebody in June about this, uh, a new test that is even an enhanced uh, calcium scanning, which not only looks at the hard plaque, the calcified plaque, but looks at the potential for soft plaque. It actually visualizes that in the coronary arteries. That's a new test. Which, again. May, which may have much higher implications yes. in, in, in determining coronary artery health. Indeed. Or yeah. the extent of atherosclerosis, which is very interesting. Because that's one criticism of the calcium sca- uh, score is that, okay, oh, so you have a very low calcium score, but you may have soft plaque, which is not visualized. So, you yeah. know, it's like you may still be at risk. But it's almost inconceivable that somebody has a zero score or, you know, like a single digit score, almost inconsequential, and then have enormous amounts of uh, obstructive soft plaque. It, it's very, yeah. that, that's a very un- outlier kind of situation. So I, mm-hmm. I'm not worried by that article. I mean, I just think it's... I think it's just the um, 
it's going to be used as a tool to substantiate rejecting claims for the test uh, because it's about cost containment. I see. It's cost containment. Yeah. It's, you know, it, yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense, right? That would be the motivation. All yeah. right. Fran, thank you for that very thoughtful question. Okay, so let's uh, pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, our uh, previous email for questions crashed, and we have a new one, and I think you'll like it. It's real simple. It's questions at drhoffman.net. Send your questions to questions at drhoffman.net, and uh, we'll answer them on a subsequent edition of Intelligent Medicine. Meanwhile, we've got more questions coming up for you. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman with today with, today with Layla Mutin. It's our weekly Q&A with Layla, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.